All right. Hello, everybody. This is the Chainlink God podcast, and I think we have we have a pretty special one today. So it's it's not just going to be a monologue with CLG today. So I actually have uh, the Crypto Oracle, the, the one and only on here as well. And we're going to dive through a bunch of different topics. But before we kind of give a brief overview, just wanted to give an introduction to myself. If you don't know who I am already, I am a Chainlink community ambassador. So I kind of provide the selection of link pills on Twitter. And that's sometimes computer science, sometimes that's philosophy, sometimes that's shitposting, just kind of depends on the, the, the kind of day it is really. So if, if you're not already on Chainlink Twitter, then I would recommend it because that's basically where the entire crypto community is. But it's not just about me. We have Crypto Oracle on here. So you want to give an introduction of yourself? Sure. Uh, so I'm Crypto Oracle. A lot of people know me on Twitter as Crypto Oracle. I co-write on Smart Content with CLG here. Um, a lot of people know me from writing a lot of the original link pill articles, I guess you could say. So um, yeah, glad to be here and finally on a video recording and not just uh, releasing my content through the spoken word or through the uh, written word. Yeah, a lot of our content usually is just like a like the God Protocol piece, just a, a book of, of link pills, basically. So that, that this yeah. conversation will be, it'll be a little different, but still kind of a same deep dive, just in a very, very different format, I would say. So just kind of, kind of a brief overview, we're kind of touching on uh, what trust means, what, what are contracts, what are blockchains, what are the value they provide, what's Chainlink, what's Oracles, and kind of the, the end state of contracts, what that would kind of look like. So kind of just, let, let's start at the beginning. Why should people care about blockchains and smart contracts? How do they work? What, what is the value proposition that this technology actually provides society? Sure. Um, so, so when we think about this, like why, why should people care about blockchains? Like what's the fundamental value? What does it actually bring to society? And really, I think the answer is, is trust. It allows different people to come together and collaborate around something in a manner where they can all trust each other. And so like maybe we should first define trust, like what is trust? And, and trust is really a firm. So this is actually from, I just typed in what is trust on Wikipedia. It's a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. And I think just something to note here is that it's, it's belief. So it's not definitive where as opposed to truth. And, and I think trust is really how much you trust something is the magnitude of belief that you have in it. Um, and so with, with trust and collaboration, you know, collaboration is how society achieves like greater goals than you could achieve by yourself because we can work together around a common cause and we can get a lot more output out of that than any one person could do by themselves. And what that allows that people to do is specialize in tasks, you know, and when I specializing, you can, you can become really good at something and then trade your labor for a lot of other things that maybe you're not good at. And I think that really, it frees up a lot of time to pursue other things. It allows you to really expand your life experience a lot. Like you could do a lot of things that you would never do if you were just had to, you know, everything you, every good that you wanted to purchase, everything you'd have to do that yourself. You know, I think that's a, that's a key dynamic. Cause when you think about like how humans used to live, 
everybody basically did the same tasks. Everybody had to be a farmer. They needed food. And so when you think about how much time of the day you were spending on that specific task, everybody was redundantly doing the same task over and over again for themselves, which is just an incredibly inefficient way of doing things. So when you can delegate tasks to other people and you trust them to do those tasks, now a fraction of the population are generating food for the rest of the population. So that kind of delegation of responsibility is what actually allows us to uh, increase the ability for each individual to maximize the value they can provide society. And that could be specific tasks. If you think like maybe somebody's a baker, maybe somebody's uh, a priest, you can get into more abstract type things. That's kind of where schools and education came into play where you didn't have to work on the farm all day. You could go uh, actually learn more valuable skills that you could provide to other people. So I yeah, just kind of wanted to emphasize on that point. That's trust is key to maximizing value that we can generate. Yeah, and I think it's not just maximizing value, but like, but maximizing life experience. There's so many things that you're able to do now and experience. Whereas if you were just worried about, you know, food and your home and like just little small things like that, you you know, your reality is going to be very narrow compared to what you know what it is today. Um, it does make things more complex, but it also makes things more exciting and and and. and kind of like a, it's like an expansion in consciousness in many ways. It allows us to expand our consciousness. The, with, through this collaboration, like one of the most important things to that is that people trust each other. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons is that it just creates more harmony. If people don't trust each other, it creates a lot of conflict and that's actually worse for society. So in order to maximize this collaboration, like we need to trust each other. So, so when we think about trust, like what is the, how do we establish trust in society? Like, what are the main ways to do that? You know, I think one of the first ways is, is just reputation, personal relationships. Uh, and, and we still do that today. And that's great, but the, there, there are some limitations to that. Uh, one is like, it just doesn't scale. You, you can't scale that outside of your local community for the most part. I and mean, yes, you could have a friend who knows a friend, but at the end of the day, it's not very scalable. Scalable. It's not, you couldn't, with the way the world works today and how global it is, it would never work. Um, and, and the other problem is it's not really a tangible recourse for disputes. Like if, if we are just based on like a handshake and like, you know, if there's a problem, I mean, you really, you know, that's why people used to fight each other back in the day. That's why people used to go to war. Uh, there's not, we don't have a civil dispute systems, you know, as much. And, that, and that, that's really, you know, yes, we have legal courts and stuff, but, you know, that's why contracts came into being because contracts allow us to scale globally and, and allow us to, to clearly define obligations and situations and the rewards and penalties for not doing things. And that's really, you know, we saw, uh, Sergey's alluded to before in, in his uh, talks, you know, this really was a huge expansion and our ability to collaborate around the world. Yeah, when you think about like, why did people, why were people willing to take on the risk to go to the new world and find these other lands and find these rewards? It's because they were able to create these contractual agreements to hedge their risk with other people who are willing to invest in that journey. And so, you know, you could have a word of mouth type of agreement, but that's not defined. And if something goes wrong, then what happens then? So when we think about contracts too, I think they become even more 
important, the more society becomes complex. Because when society becomes more complex, there's a lot more that could go wrong, which have cascading uh, effects across many you know different sectors. And so, so having clear you know obligations stated, you know clear having clear contracts you know is even more important to avoid more you know catastrophic type effects. And so when we when we look at contracts, the way most contracts work today is you have a middleman or we'll more say a facilitator. Uh, so you, you could have someone in the middle of the contract, which is kind of which kind of acts as an escrow service and kind of an arbitrator between the contract, or you could have kind of a P2P contract where the the, the counterparty is kind of like the facilitator as well. And so like for example, you know, uh, in a bank, your your counterparty is the is is the bank, even and, but the bank is kind of the facilitator between deposits and then also loaning that money out. And that loaning that money out should be what generates interest for the you know the depositors. You know, doesn't really much today, but that that should be how it works. So they're kind of a middleman, but your but your direct your relationship is directly with that uh, bank. But you even see like things like Uber where your relationship is with Uber, although it's kind of acting in the middle there between the riders and the drivers. And I think, you know, the reason they do that is because if a bit of P2P transaction, how can I trust you? And so there needs to be some framework for us to trust each other and kind of manage it in a way and then also take on the legal liability and things like that uh, if they go wrong. It's actually, in some ways, it's good because a lot of, a lot of people couldn't establish that kind of relationship with every other person they meet. And so there, there are benefits to, you know, there's clear benefits to middlemen. You, you can trust each other. They're, they're kind of the neutral party in the middle that holds the assets in reserve. Um, it's, you know, reduced friction, as I said b- before. Um, like it's better than P2P bartering is basically the main point here. Uh, with, you know, if you had to barter with every single person about every single relationship and, and negotiate it and establish a framework, you know, there'd be a lot less collaboration uh, in society. Yeah, I, I think there's de- there's definitely the value to having middlemen. They reduce the cognitive load of actually engaging in contractual agreements. You don't have to actually handle the entire execution process yourself, but basically outsourcing it to this entity who does all that processing and uh, coordinating all these different activities together for uh, a large amount of agreements. So you can have one middleman who specialize in one type of agreement, one type of contract, and they can do that at scale for many people instead of each person needing to learn how to do a specific type of contract arbitration themselves. But clearly middlemen are not the panacea. They're not gonna solve everything because there are very clear issues when you have a centralized middleman in the middle of your contract with some other party. So. Ultimately, what it comes down to is that instead of needing to trust your counterparty, now you need to trust the middleman who creates the contract which both counterparties engage with. So it's a completely new dynamic of risk in that aspect. And so it can even get more complicated when that agreement, the middleman who creates that agreement is the counterparty because they can have a massive information asymmetry. They can know a lot more information about some state of an event than you, and they can use that information to get an upper hand uh, against you in some type of contractual agreement. So that can be that can range from a wide a range of different things. So when you think about systems and contracts that exist today, 
you can think of Facebook. When you're engaging with Facebook, you have absolutely no control over your data and they can leverage that over you to monetize it, monetize the data that should belong to you and you should reap the benefits of, but you don't get anything from that because the middleman is siphoning all that value away from you. You can see the disadvantages more apparent in things like the financial industry with banking. Uh, you could see PayPal and these other services are a lot more heavy handed with who they allow to engage in contracts, that kind of censorship aspect of it. Because when you have a centralized middleman, they're a gatekeeper to that contract. They determine who gets to engage in this type of specific economic contractual activity and who doesn't. And even when they don't outright censor you, they can still siphon a lot amount of fees because they have this large network effect. Because since they facilitate all these different individual entities, they have a large amount of power of determining how much they actually charge the counterparties for their services. And it can become very monopolized and it can become, you can kind of see aspects of like regulatory capture where they use the power that they have to strong arm regulations into their favor so that they end up being the only monopoly for this specific agreement. You don't have a choice. You have to pay the large fees or you don't get the contract. And even if they're not that aggressive about it, you know, when you think of something like an insurance agreement, they can really screw you over very easily because they're a large entity. They can afford to take something to court. Well, you can't. If you lost $500 in agreement, is it going to make sense to go to court? That's going to cost you $10,000 and take up a year of your time? No, it's not. So that's what these companies, these middlemen, they bet on that you're not going to go through this long court process of going through other middlemen. And so you know, you can get other aspects where they become rent seeking because they know they have this control, but, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily all bad because when they have, <laughs> when they have a way of monetizing you, they means that means they can give you services for free or for cheaper in certain cases, but that's not necessarily was better because they're extracting value away from you that you don't necessarily necessarily see. Yeah. I think those are good points. Uh, like there are benefits, like you get cheaper services, you get free, you know, free things. Like it's not all your doom and gloom, but the problem is these facilitators, middlemen, whatever you want to call them, as they become larger, they, they there's a lot more, they, they become, there's a, like a network effect of advantages that they get uh, in terms of, you know, they have, they might have personal agendas. They might become under regulatory pressures to censor certain things. If you have a ISIL, if you have an incident with them, they can kind of brush it off more because if they're a huge company and you have some little dispute with them and they don't, they're like, oh, you know what, I'm just not going to pay you right now, or oh, I'm going to delay the payment, or oh, you know, there's nothing you can, there's not a lot of recourse. And because it's you're some small fish and there's some, you know, large shark, there's not much you can really do. And it doesn't really affect their reputation that much. Yes, if they do it like, they have many of those incidents, yes, but like isolated incidents, they can kind of brush those off. And this is kind of like, they can kind of bully you in a way. Uh, you know, like, what are you gonna do against a large bank or a large insurance company or against Facebook? I mean, a lot of these social media companies, they don't even have hotlines that you could like call. Like if YouTube censors your account or deletes your, your uh, you know, channel, what can you really, there's not much you can really do and they can kind of create vague guidelines, you know, that they can exert agendas over it. 
And also there's not really a lot of transparency into how they manage these things and, and the rules and, and, and what actually goes on in the background. You don't really have a lot of insight into that. And so I, the, the question really is not so much like these are all bad, but can we do, so, is there something better? And I, I think that's what we'll get into in a solution that yes, there, there, there is something better, you know, blockchain, smart contracts, oracles. Um, and so, you know, and, and by having something better, I think we can create a lot more transparency, a lot more equity, you know, people get out what they put in. And so let's maybe get into now, like the, the whole purpose of the blockchain industry and smart contracts and why they even, you know, like the, the reason we did all this, you know, context in the beginning is because this is the problem that this is all trying to solve. And it's trying to solve these trust issues in many different ways across many different industries. Yeah. So, so when you look at blockchain technology, like the ultimate high level goal is to disintermediate the middlemen by replacing centralized middlemen who mediate these contracts and replacing them with a decentralized trust network, basically. So you're no longer trusting a single entity to hold up their end of the bargain or execute a contract correctly. Instead, it's a group of entities which run software on their computer uh, across the world and generate consensus about a certain state of a contractual agreement. So in this type of decentralized network, which takes the form of blockchain, there isn't a central coordinator, meaning there isn't a centralized point of failure. So there's no specific entity who can censor you. There's no specific entity who can strong arm you or screw you over an agreement or refuse to give you uh, access to an agreement. There is no entity because it's this decentralized consensus. There's no way to butt in and uh, inject your ideals on how the system should work when it's everybody's decision. It's, it kind of comes down ultimately to social consensus of how strong or what, what are the parameters of this network. And if you're defining that as being ultimately extremely censorship resistant, then no individual entity can uh, remove that aspect. So basically the end result from this or the ultimate goal is that it levels the playing field for everybody who wants to engage in some contractual agreement or some economic activity because they're not going to get bullied by some large bank or some large social media uh, oligarchy. They don't have to worry about that dynamic. And in, in this aspect, when you look at the traditional economy with middlemen, you have to interact with middlemen. You have to engage with them. But when you have this decentralized network, you can actually take, you can be a part of the network and be one of the individuals in this network. And you can provide your value to the network and generate value back for that. So it's not a centralized company who chooses how much they're going to charge for something or how much services they're going to provide. It's like an opt-in economy where everybody participates in providing some specific similar service. So that's kind of like the broad overview is creating this, this trust dynamic. Yeah, I think just in a very like simple way, if people want to think about blockchains, it's basically the blockchain is acting as some type of facilitator between two or more people. And it's incentivized through you know, financial incentives to come to an honest consensus. And the, the reason is that the rules of how the protocol will engage, you know, the, how the consensus is formed is already predefined. Like if X happens, then Y happens. And that's predefined and that's because it runs on a decentralized network, it's essentially tamper proof. So no one person can 
unilaterally override the rules of the system. And because they're so, so these, because these rules are tamper-proof and predefined you, and, and, and operated across a decentralized network, you know that it's going to execute as it's written. So you have a very strong guarantee that the facilitation between the two parties is going to happen exactly as you understand it's going to happen, uh, as opposed to centralized where they can you know, unilaterally make a decision like to slightly modify that. Not that they always do, but they have that power. And, and you know, as the stakes are raised and, and things like that, you know, they could exercise those forms of control. So I, I think it would be good, you know, you're probably best to start on this, is to look, is to teach people a little bit like how do blockchains actually work under the hood? And I think the best way to do this would maybe to look at a proof of work and a proof of stake model. Like how do they, why are they, like how are they, how do they come to consensus? So when we're looking at a blockchain, we're looking at consensus. Really, we want to start at what, what goals are we trying to achieve here? So really, there's kind of like a, a litany of different things. You want to ensure that the each computer in the network is running open source software, meaning the uh, source code is publicly available. Anybody can download it themselves. They can read it. They can verify exactly what the software on their computer is doing and what the software on everyone else's computer is doing. And uh, one of the primary value propositions of blockchain is that once you have a contract, once you have a state change of a contract, it's immutable. So you can't change it once it happens. And the only way you can actually verify that something hasn't been changed is because it's transparent. It's a public network that everybody in the world can tune into and listen and monitor for themselves. And that's only possible because it's entirely permissionless, meaning anybody can not only monitor in and listen to what's happening, they can actually contribute to the network themselves and help secure it. And because it's a permissionless system, that basically generates censorship resistance. So nobody can be prevented from joining the network or participating or monitoring the network. And because there's so many individuals within this network, that's kind of what creates this hyper-reliability where blockchains, they don't go down because it's not a single server somewhere that can be flooded. It's a decentralized network. So even if half the network goes offline, the network is still running because it's designed to be kind of the meme to be World War III resistant, where even if a major portion of the network goes offline, it still keeps running. But how do these computers in a blockchain network, how do they agree with each other? How do they determine that a contract actually was correct? And so that, that kind of comes down to the different consensus mechanisms which are used, which are actually more accurately civil resistant uh, systems. So you want some way to be able to determine who an individual entity is in with regular contractual agreements that's based upon identity, but that could be easily faked. I can go spin up a server somewhere and spoof myself as a million different people and say, yeah, I'm a million people. Let's all change the network to this. But you want to prevent that in a blockchain to actually maintain this immutable and this censorship resistant aspect. So there's different methods and the, the most popular is proof of work, which essentially in order to contribute to the network, you need to give up something of value. And that something of value is energy. So each computer in the network is running what's called a miner, or it's a, it's a computer that's performing uh, these repetitive math functions over and over and over again. Uh, and essentially what they're doing is they're playing a lottery. 
the first person who guesses the right number gets to produce the next block in this chain of blocks, which each contain transactions. And so as every new entity joins the network, more and more energy is being added to this network, it's being consumed. Meaning if you wanted to attack the network, you would need to accumulate more energy than half of the network. And that's kind of what's called a 51% attack. So that's kind of what, why Bitcoin or uh, why blockchains like Bitcoin are as secure as they are because yes, they consume a lot of energy. I mean, it's more, I think, than like the Netherlands, but that's also one of its greatest advantages. You need a shit ton of energy to actually attack these networks. But proof of work is obviously energy intensive. It's, it, it's not very green and it's, some of it's uh, based upon renewable energy, but that's like a, a fraction of it. So another alternative to generating consensus is what's called proof of stake. So really, when you think of proof of work, energy is just an abstraction of money of, you know, you can only get energy if you pay for it. While proof of stake ditches the energy and just uses the money directly. So every individual, like in Ethereum, needs to stake a specific amount of money. And that basically gives them participation to the network. And that ensures civil resistance because the only way to attack the network is to accumulate enough money, half of the supply of whatever uh, cryptocurrency that that blockchain uses in order to attack the network. So essentially, when you boil it down, you're using financial incentives to ensure honest consensus and to continue the reliability of the network because each individual, they're either invested in mining hardware, which is expensive, or they're invested in this cryptocurrency, which they're staking, which is also expensive. And they don't wanna devalue that equipment and that stake that they have. So they have a really strong economic or specifically crypto economic incentive to um, provide honest services to the network. So that's kind of where the security comes from. The consensus with proof of work, proof of stake is like the civil resistance mechanism. So that that's a bit of like a, a rant a little bit, but like that's that's why blockchains work basically. Yeah, I think the main point is that there's a large financial incentive, which is the like no one's going to produce a lot of energy or even stake a lot of coins if there's not going to be a financial award. So the first thing you have is a financial reward. And if you make that financial reward high enough, a lot of people will compete for it. And because you have a lot of people competing for it, if you 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 can create a decentralization. And that's why you see like they in proof of work, they raise the mining difficulty to a certain level. So you know, it's, it's very rare that the same person will get the block every single time. Now, proof of stake does more of a, a rotating function or randomized, uh, you know, selection of validator. But uh, anyways, the, the, the idea is that you have a large financial incentive over a decentralized network and people compete for that. Uh, and they actually have to put real economic, you know, real, put real value at stake to get that, you know, so that makes it harder to attack. So when we think about blockchains, you know, really there, there are two things. There are ledger, which is just a list of what everything that's happened in a time over time. So it's listed, it's, it's chronological and it's, a, it's like a computer. It computes uh, the you know, transactions that are sent to it. So you could think of it like a really, really secure environment to run a predefined program or predefined code. Now, the first one was simply just managing a, in a basically a payment system with its own unit of account, which is Bitcoin. So like 
when you send a transaction to the Bitcoin blockchain, it's going to verify a couple of very basic parameters. Like, does, did this person sign it with the right private key? Do they have enough, uh, you know, money, enough balance to actually make the transaction? Or, you know, with Bitcoin, they do UTXOs. And so it, it, there's a very few parameters. It's just kind of like a smart contract because it's kind of like if X happens, then Y. But it's people don't really call it a smart contract, but it, it kind of is like the first one. And then what we saw was kind of a, a, a evolution of more advanced types of programs and code that can run on a blockchain. You know, no longer is it, oh, I can just check private keys, but if, you know, we saw with Ethereum and, and even before that more advanced, you know, programs that you can control. And maybe you could expand upon this a little bit more, but you know, that, that's kind of, you know, what happened with blockchains. So when we're looking at blockchains and kind of the evolution, like you said, it was like this started as a money, but, and that that in and of itself is a contract, but contracts are more than just ownership of things. They are, they define how people interact with each other. You need to do this, you get that, that if X, then Y, which is more than just, if I have tokens, I can send them. So what we kind of saw was uh, protocol level smart contracts, which basically means every time you create a new type of contract, Maybe it's a decentralized exchange. Maybe it's an insurance thing. Maybe it's creating tokens that needed to be added to the base layer blockchain itself. Meaning every time a new smart contract was added, it had to be what's called hard forked in, meaning all of the computers in the network needed to agree, yes, we're gonna add this new contract to the network. And that worked, but it was extremely, it took a lot of time and it took a lot of social coordination to actually pull that off. So that's that's kind of what we saw with NXT. But if it takes a year to launch a contract, not practical. So what we kind of the, the core innovation and in what most people refer to as smart contracts are programmable smart contracts. So that's kind of what Ethereum introduced. Uh, I think the white paper was in 2014, launched in 2015. That allowed anybody to use a um, Turing complete programming language to script up, they can write up their own contract, and then they can deploy it on the network without asking for any permission. Because it's essentially, instead of adding like a new graphics card to your computer, you're just downloading a new application. It's a lot more simpler in that aspect and anybody can deploy these contracts. So that that's kind of like the core innovation with Ethereum smart contracts is that anybody can create them and any of these contracts can interact with each other, creating a lot more uh, permissionless innovation and that's kind of what we've seen pop up with nfts with DeFi and whatnot was because of this permissionless innovation would you say that this is a fair analogy that the protocol smart contracts um, you know uh, that they're like a, a computer that runs like a very or it's like a computer that has like runs like a single application almost and in order to change that single application, you need all the computers to kind of come to, to a consensus and then socially coordinate. Whereas Ethereum with these programmable smart contracts is like an open computer that anyone can just deploy their own application on separately and run it separately. Yeah, I, I would say that's a good analogy. You can think of like the protocol level. There's like one computer that everybody uses and they need to all agree, we're gonna put this new, we're gonna put, I kind of think of it as more like hardware. You need to put a new graphics card in there. We all need to agree what kind of graphics card, you know, when should we put it in? What type should it be? How fast should it be? All these different things. But if everybody had their own computer, they could do whatever they want with their own computer. So you could think of these computers as smart contracts. 
basically. So if everybody can deploy their own smart contract, you don't have to ask the network of computers if it's okay to do that, or if they think that it's, this parameter should be tweaked. It doesn't matter. Anybody can deploy their own contract. So that's that's kind of like the core innovation I see with like Ethereum and programmable smart contracts is that you can write contracts about anything, deploy them anytime, and uh, have it use any type of logic, really. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like you have a, a large library of things you can do, and then you can just use those in whatever way you want, run your own application, as opposed to like every time you need to go through the whole network. I mean, you could see how long it takes for blockchains to do upgrades at the very base layer. Like it's, it's it takes a long time and there's a lot at risk when you do that every single time. Whereas this is a more like horizontal framework for people to launch their own applications. So we just define kind of what blockchains are, what smart contracts are. So let's look at how Chainlink fits into this framework. Like why, why should anyone care about Chainlink? What does it actually bring to the table for smart contracts and all, and all this technology? I think the, the goal, the whole reason that Oracle's even came around is because people wanted to expand what you could do on a blockchain. So remember, Blockchain is basically this very high trust environment for, for code to run. And it, it's really secure actually because it's, it's isolated and it's very limited in the functionality that it can actually do. If we look at like Bitcoin, it, it really just verifies private keys. It verifies that someone has the, you know, enough coin, you know, enough Bitcoin to cover their transaction. So it's very, limited to what it needs to uh, prove. And that's what makes it really secure. It's very, it's just very, very simple. But you, the, you know, there's not a lot of programs you can run that only, need, that only require that information. And so there was a desire to, ver to create contracts like if the, you know, if the weather is X, then trigger payment you know, Y. And so there, there was a lot of need for external inputs so can I verify things happen in the real world? Also a need to access maybe computations that aren't possible on the blockchain or to execute outputs and payments not on the blockchain or on another blockchain. And so, so the idea for this expansion in the inputs, outputs and computation that could be done with the blockchain, this kind of connection to the outside world was why oracles came, you know, the purpose of oracles. How do we, how do we connect this high trust environment to this external environment for data and computation in a way that that preserves the trustworthiness of that on-chain environment? And this is really where oracles came about. And so like, wh what are oracles? Oracles are really just entities that allow a smart contract to connect to the outside world. Uh, whether that's sourcing data, transmitting data, and even, you know, as we see in the channel 2.0 white paper, performing computations on that data. And I think, so, so the question is, why, well, why can't blockchains do that themselves? And I think maybe this is where you could come and explain, you know, why, why can Ethereum or whatever, whatever blockchain have built-in oracles? So with a blockchain, what, what, what you really want is very strong determinism. So that a program is going to run exactly as it was originally written. And so everything that a blockchain does is very deterministic. You can verify if a specific transaction was signed with the correct private key or can think of it like a password. 
you can verify if a specific uh, address has enough funds in order to make a transaction. These are all things that are entirely deterministic. But when you're asking a question like, what's the price of oil or what's the weather in Argentina, that's something that's not deterministic. And that's something where if you ask source A, you're gonna get a different, a different answer than source B, and you may get a different answer if you ask the same source, but at a slightly different time. So when you think of a decentralized network and if blockchain miners were to ping some source for data, they're all gonna get slightly different answers. There is no determinism there. You know, when you think of like, if you're verifying if an account has funds, everyone's gonna get the right answer. But with oracles, that's not the case. And so if, if these blockchain miners can't agree on the state of the real world, then the entire consensus of the network breaks and it breaks for all contracts, even for contracts that didn't actually need the data that was trying to be fetched. So ultimately, um, what, what you really want is a dedicated network in which its sole responsibility is to provide whatever services that a blockchain doesn't do because a blockchain is great at transactions and ensuring strong security around those transactions. But with an external Oracle network, it can provide these external data inputs, these off-chain computations, these external uh, data outputs that can't be achieved by a blockchain itself. And in which if a specific Oracle network fails, the blockchain keeps running, the blockchain's unaffected. So how a, blo how a blockchain is aiming to generate security is through specifically isolating itself from external networks. And if you connect it directly to external networks, that's a major attack vector that can take the network down. And so if you essentially outsource that to a Oracle network to, prefer, to uh, perform these duties, if that specific Oracle network fails, the blockchain itself doesn't fail. And so that kind of comes down to blockchains generate determinism, Oracle networks generate consensus about more subjective data sets that are not gonna be very deterministic. Yeah, and just to, to add on that, you know, like again, we wanna create this really, really high trust environment with the blockchain. And so we simplify it, we make it very, very simple. And really that takes the form of standardization. Every miner can perform the same task. It's just redundancy. If we, if the miner has to, you know, the, the, the outside world, they're like verifying something happened in the outside world. First off, there's a lot of events in the outside world. There's a lot of types of computation. Like the off-chain world is, is, is all types of things you could want from the outside world to expect that all the miners to have all the data points and all the computations for everything that any contract could ever want in the outside world is completely unrealistic and impossible. Not only from a te technical point, from a financial point, you know, for just getting good data, that requires you to have subscription to an API that costs money. Uh, and, and so for all the nodes and all the network to have all these resources is impossible you want the blockchain to be very simple and standardized. And if you want it permissionless, it has to be very, very simple so anyone can join the network. The only thing you really need to join to, to become a miner is to have special hardware. And that's really it. So the, it's just like, there's a, there is a slight, you know, limitation in terms of capital, but it's, it's not, it, with an Oracle, by isolating the Oracle network, you can have a lot of different oracles that provide different services and you can cover all the things in the off-chain world in a manner where not every you know not everyone has to have access to the same resources like this oracle network with you know 20 nodes can have can, it's just feeding this specific data 
Whereas this one is just is doing this computation or getting this data and you can, you can it's from a financial standpoint, even from a security standpoint, it makes sense. If, if you know, like you said before, if, if, the, if the miners have to do all that work, you could have a lot, you could break the whole blockchain and all and a lot of smart contracts that are running on that blockchain that have nothing to do with your Oracle query, they could be affected. And so you have this, you know, isolation creates security. Yeah, I, th I think you brought up a good point in terms of like the, the standardization. That basically means you create like a least common denominator where the, the most powerful and the most flexible blockchain node needs to be just as flexible as like the least flexible blockchain node. They all need to be able to do the same operations. With an Oracle network, Oracles can do a hell of a lot of different things. Some may get price data from this premium data source. Others may generate verifiable randomness using cryptography. Others may query a different blockchain for proof reserves of like something like wrapped Bitcoin. All of these require different capabilities, different data sources, different resources, and trying to force all of these different types of resources into blockchain miners, which are supposed to be simple, there, there's no way a blockchain miner would be able to achieve every possible Oracle function that could ever exist. So if you have an Oracle framework like Chainlink, you can create an Oracle network to do a specific service and it can be specialized to do that exact service and nothing else. And that essentially allows you to keep the blockchain simple so everybody can run a blockchain node while oracles can specialize in providing a specific service and you you choose how that oracle network is built and maybe it helps to explain to people when you say break consensus like what would that actually look like uh in the real world like how would how would that play out so if you have a disagreement it can kind of result in different things it can result in the fact that no new blocks can be created because nobody agrees. Uh, you know, if, if every miner is trying to fetch a data source and aggregate it together, but they all disagree about this value, they can't create a new block because nobody agrees. And it kind of depends on the implementation. You could have a different implementation where they would try to force it to go through and say, no, I am correct. Well, now you just created a bunch of different forks. And so now your blockchain was just supposed to be a singular chain. Now it's like a tree, it's branching all over the place. How do you determine which one's the right version? Who was true? Well, that's the Oracle problem, isn't it? So that that's kind of, if you break consensus, you break the chain of blocks effectively. And if you do that, well, blockchains have no value to anymore. So that, that's kind of what it means to break consensus. Yeah, that, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think a lot of people get what it looks like in the real world, like it would actually happen. I think the other thing too, say you were, to have the miners do some very basic Oracle function, like get the price of some asset. Or, or, or let's say, maybe not the best example, if you wanted them to act as Oracles, there's a lot of coordination to say, okay, well, what, what is, how are we going to get that information? And, 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 and so every time you add a new feed, you, there's a lot of coordination that needs to go into the base layer. And, how are we going to source this? What are we going to, you can't really innovate because everyone, there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen at the base level, which we, which we see is very slow. We see this from Bitcoin, we see this from Ethereum. And that's actually kind of a good thing in a lot of, in, in a lot of ways is that if you just had wholesale changes on the base layer all the time with this much value at stake, it's, it's kind of dangerous. Uh, you know, we all want certain things, but actually, <laughs> 
it's a lot more dangerous than people realize to be you know, messing with the base layer all the time. And so if you had, if you were trying to do like Vitalik pointed this out that you really limit Oracle innovation if you had blockchain miners doing Oracle functions. I think a good way of looking at it is that from like a user's perspective, let's say you want the price of this new token you created against USD and then that doesn't exist on your blockchain network. And this is like a blockchain that would be an Oracle you would basically have to lobby for the creation of that network. You would need to ensure that these miners generate social consensus to add your new Oracle network. So you're, we're basically, that would be like, we would go back to the day of these protocol level smart contracts where you have to hard fork in a contract. In this case, you'd be hard forking in a new Oracle network. That takes forever, that's expensive. And it's just, it's not practical. And from both the user's perspective of time and from the protocol perspective of like the governance overhead, you know, as these smart contract economy grows, the amount of data that's being consumed is going to grow exponentially. And that means the governance overhead would grow even further than that to determine which feeds should be added, what sources should be added, how often should it update. These are, these are questions blockchain miners shouldn't have to answer because they're blockchain miners. They're, you know, they're not here to generate consensus on external data, to generate consensus on transactions. And from a financial perspective, are, are they, are, how do they know they're going to make money from your price feed? Like, or are they either going to get that data for free? They're just going to like, I don't know, ping some free API or they got to pay for that. And how do they know they're even going to get a return on that? You know, it doesn't really scale, especially small projects, you know, maybe. It, it, so there's a lot of issues with innovation there and, and the amount it can, you know, the amount of use cases it can serve. It's a really, it's better to separate those two layers. So let's look at, let's transition now to, to Chainlink. You know, maybe we could start out explaining like what Chainlink is, uh, you know, how it, how it provides determinism to the external world. I think like when you're looking at a blockchain, you effectively have a singular monolithic network that has global consensus. But when you're looking at Chainlink and how it's designed and its architecture value proposition, is that it's actually more like a framework for building and connecting to decentralized Oracle networks that provide specific decentralized services. So that could be getting external data, that could be sending outputs to an enterprise system, that could be performing off-chain computation for cheap, and then just posting the final uh, result of that on chain. So the way Chainlink has been designed has been purpose-built to ensure the highest level of security and the highest level of reliability. Because if your Oracle network isn't secure or it's not reliable, then the contracts that depend upon that Oracle network are not secure or reliable either. And so there's kind of an important nuance there. You have security in the aspect that it's tamper resistant, that it can't be manipulated and send fake data. And then there's also the aspect that you want it to be reliable that it continues to provide data, kind of that liveness versus safety dynamic. So when, when you look at Chainlink, what's essentially allowing contracts to do is automate the fetching of external data to automate all of these external processes to allow the creation of a truly autonomous smart contract that still retains the core value proposition of a blockchain. You know, it, it's kind of like, you kind of think of the dynamic, if you have an insecure Oracle, you have the garbage in garbage out problem, which means any garbage data you give to a contract, it's just not, it's, it's not gonna be secure and you're not gonna get the output that you expect. So 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the, the, the real value prop that Chainlink provides, as you said before, is automating the connection to the outside world. Because anyone could act as an oracle and say, here's the value. They just make a transaction on chain. But like you said, if I give the wrong input, well, the logic just going to process that with how it's already been defined to do so and produce some output from it. It's not, it has no, it's nothing it can do. So if you feed it a bad input, it will give you a bad output. And so actually the security of the input, in the, uh, the security of the input is just as important as the security of the logic because the, the input affects the, the logic. And so, so Chainlink is really giving you a way to, you know, like for example, with external data, a way for it to go fetch the data, make sure the data is validated and then bring it into the contract. Um, because like I said, anyone could act as Oracle tech, you know, if they wanted to, but this is a way to automate that process. And like you said, then create fully automated decentralized applications. Yeah, so I, th I think like the next area we can step into is like, okay, we know security and reliability is incredibly crucial, but how does Chainlink actually provide these guarantees that it's going to be secure and reliable? So there's kind of, there's two different approaches and we, we can kind of start with like the more, the, the easy, the more sim, uh, simpler, intuitive to understand, just like a blockchain ensures tamper resistance by using a decentralized network of miners, an Oracle network for, uh, for data is both decentralized in sense of you have multiple Oracle nodes. So you have multiple entities responsible for going to fetch data. And then you also have multiple data sources, meaning each individual Oracle node is actually fetching from multiple data sources. And so what you're effectively doing is you're stripping out single points of failure. So if a single Oracle node goes down or a single data source fails or returns manipulated data, or it also goes down, that doesn't affect the final aggregated value. So that, that's kind of how Chainlink Oracle networks are structured. They're not a service or they're not like a centralized service for some company. They're a decentralized network of independent uh, entities who fetch from multiple independent sources, generating consensus truth based on this decentralized aggregation. And so with Chainlink, every, like when you think about how much value you're trying to secure with your Oracle network, if you have a $10,000 agreement, you may not need that much decentralization because more decentralization need, means you need to pay more for that. But if you have a $100 billion smart contract, well, you're going to want a lot of nodes. You're going to want a lot of data sources, and you're going to have to uh, pay both of those. And so Chainlink effectively allows you to launch and or connect to Oracle networks that can seamlessly scale up and down the amount of security that is actually provided. So that, that's like a crucial dynamic as to why we see some Oracle networks with maybe nine nodes and some Oracle networks with 31 nodes. And we're gonna keep seeing this growing as the amount of value in like the decentralized finance ecosystem increases. But there's also another aspect of like the more advanced way that I think you could start stepping into. Sure, I just wanted to touch on before as well. So you have, you said decentralized nodes, decentralized data. And I think another dynamic that a lot of people don't fully appreciate or, or understand is the idea of the quality of those data sources and those nodes. Because a lot of people, because blockchains are standardized, everyone does the same thing. And you really can't deviate from that. You're like, if you're a miner, you're, you're, you're just running hash functions. You're guessing random numbers. You're not really doing much. But 
when you're doing external, when you're, when you're sourcing external data or you're, or you're running a node, like the quality can vary. And so you, you want to, and also you could, people be like, well, why don't you just have millions of nodes? Well, million, like we said before, financially, it's not possible. And also you don't know, you can't guarantee quality and different things like that. And so you want to be able to evaluate the data sources you're getting and the nodes that are running it in order, because it's going to give you more security. And then you can, you can scale both of those up, but from a fact, you know, it doesn't make sense. You can't do this in a, it's much harder to do this in a permissionless manner and still get complete security and reliability that you would want. It actually make your system less secure and likely less reliable if you didn't have these kind of guarantees. And also there's a lot of use cases where certain people won't have access to certain data, you know, maybe because it's an enterprise system or, or, or whatnot. Um, and so, or, or maybe there's some Oracle networks where people want specialized hardware and not every node wants to run that hardware and it's not, or it's not economically feasible for every node to run that hardware. This is why randomization models and, and oracles are, are very difficult and probably you know, not really practical at all to really serve all the use cases you would want. Uh, and, and in terms of the advanced way, so we talked about like decentralized nodes, decentralized data, you know, evaluating data sources and node quality. And there's some more though, like there's other types of security and that you would want from an Oracle network, depending on your use case. Like we have to understand that Oracle's are providing a lot of different types of data and computation and, and, the, and the requirements that, that a user may want are going to be different in different cases. So you, for example, you could use cryptographic proofs. For example, ZK, the, the oracles could run zero knowledge proofs to obtain data in a manner that retains confidentiality. They could go, they could get data from, a, from an API through using a zero knowledge proof. This is what Deco does. And then they could pull that, they could basically attest to that data and verify and then feed that att attestation on chain. So was this person above 18? They could go check that without actually ever seeing that data and then test to it on chain. So it's a way to bring confidential data on chain without exposing that data or, or taking that data out of that database and putting it on chain. Um, it, there's a few other cryptographic proofs. Maybe you could go into these like signed APIs, RNG. Yeah, so with when you look at like data sources today, they don't, unfortunately, cryptographically sign their data. However, the ones that do provide greater security guarantees because the Oracle node providing data from a signed data source can't manipulate the data because it would, make, it would break the cryptographic proof. So as more data sources cryptographically sign their data sources and as more data providers start running their own Chainlink node, which allows them to cryptographically sign their data, that basically provides integrity guarantees it doesn't necessarily prove the data is correct, but it does prove that the data wasn't uh, manipulated during the delivery process. And that's that's a very powerful dynamic for just completely preventing manipulation by Oracle nodes. That's like the, the long-term vision, all data sources will eventually be signed. And so you have other ways of using cryptographic proofs like uh, Chainlink's verifiable randomness function, VRF. That basically provides a secure source of randomness where block data is combined with an Oracle node's private key, and that generates a random value plus a cryptographic proof, which can then be verified on-chain. And in that process, not the Oracle node, the users, nor the developers of an application can actually manipulate that randomness data provide. So there's kind of, there's different ways you can use these cryptographic proofs, and there's kind of other analogs with like trusted hardware where 
instead of cryptographic proofs, you're using uh, more hardware-based attestations where you have a, uh, it's more technical, but like a part of your processor that's disconnected from the rest of it. So it's like a black box where even the node operator can't manipulate the data being processed or see the data being processed. So that, that's more of like cryptographic assurances side, but kind of a key dynamic that provides a lot of the security that's a little more nuanced, I would say, or maybe not a fully grasped concept uh, is like the crypto economics that's provided from using a native token. So when you look at Chainlink, it's it, each Oracle node is paid in and holds link tokens. That's basically like the money of the Oracle economy. And so because each node operator, their future revenues denominated in link and they hold link, they have a strong incentive to keep providing reliable services because if the network becomes corrupted and money, a large amount of smart contract funds get lost because of that, that native token uh, becomes devalued because the trust and the reputation in the network as a whole uh, is essentially destroyed from the public. So that that's kind of like an economic incentive where each node operator, it's more economically rational for them to be honest. So you can kind of see this dynamic already with things like you can draw a connection to Bitcoin where each Bitcoin miner holds Bitcoin, they have ASICs and their future revenues denominated in Bitcoin. And so if the Bitcoin network becomes corrupted, that's going to adversely affect the value of Bitcoin on the open market. And that, you know, that's a large financial penalty. And each miner would be uh, heavily financially incentivized to prevent any attack like that happening because they have so much skin in the game. And so that's kind of why networks like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, and even like Chainlink have an honest majority assumption. The network works if the majority is honest, but the reason why the majority is honest is because they're financially exposed to the health of that network as a whole. So that that's kind of like the more crypto economic perspective of things, but there's kind of, you can kind of layer on additional mechanisms where you can have Chainlink nodes running different software clients. So uh, you can have Oracle networks running like the latest Oracle client version, and then also running at the same time, like a backup node running a different code base. So if the primary node were to fail, it just switches over to the backup. And so that's something Chainlink already has. You can also touch the dynamic of like circuit breakers, like in the traditional financial system. If there's a large deviation from one update to another update, that can be prevented from being ingested by a contract. So these are like the more advanced, complicated way, but all of these kind of contribute to more of like the unique benefits of if Chainlink were to be, become a standard, why would that be beneficial? Yeah, and I just wanted to touch a little bit on a few points you just made. So with the multiple clients, I don't think many people understand this, like, but the price, like they're like, well, what if Chainlink fails? Well, first off, it's already decentralized. So like, this is like what it is. You don't like people are like, oh, let's use an Oracle aggregator. Well, you're, it's like saying, let's back up Ethereum with Cardano. Like you don't back up the you don't need a backup of something that's already decentralized. However, like you said, there's two clients running, for example, on the price feeds, the, 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 the nodes are running OCR, but Flex Monitor is running at a very low frequency in the background and can be uh, like basically automated failover in case something was to happen. So you have a different code base that could kick in where some crazy scenario was to happen. So I don't think many people realize that there already is a backup happening. And you could do circuit breakers, like you said, where you know if the latest price update is like 30% different, you know, 
potentially because of huge anomaly could trigger a circuit breaker. In terms of the crypto economics, you already touched on the implicit incentives. I think there are a few more that people don't always consider as well. Like a lot of nodes probably also are using like Aave or some of these other platforms. So they have a lot more link exposure and it's probably immediately obvious. And, and so they're, especially when they're managing funds to pay, for, you know, to, to, to run their node as well, like they have a lot of link exposure that they would not want to lose. They also are known entities. They can, it's like in a blockchain, people could attack the system and kind of like hide away because you don't really know, you don't know who they are. Um, and whereas in Chainlink, if you're using known nodes, you could do random nodes, but in the current, you know, right now, like they're known nodes, I can't just hide away and, and no one's gonna know who they are and find them like that doesn't, you can't do that. And so that, that creates also like a, a different type of incentive to be honest to the network. It's kind of a touch on that point with like the reliable nodes. When you look at some of the node operators that are in the Chainlink network today, we have like telecommunication enterprises like Deutsche Telekom. We have traditional data providers like Kaiko. These are institutions who have business models outside of the Chainlink network. So if they decide it's a good idea to be malicious in the Chainlink network, they're not only forfeiting the value of their link tokens they're exposed to and the future revenue in the Chainlink network, but they're also potentially opening themselves to losing revenue in their existing business models outside of the Chainlink network as well as harming their reputation and potentially introducing more legal risk because they are a public entity. So that's kind of another dynamic of because they're known entities, because they're large, uh, even some of them don't even necessarily have to be large operations. You can have proof of stake validator pools. Their business is their reputation. They destroy their reputation. You know, all the delegators they have on like other blockchains, you know, other services they provide go away. So they have a strong incentive to provide reliable services because of the Chainlink network and their exposure to Link and because of their other services. So that, that's kind of, that's a benefit by having these reliable nodes instead of just choosing random nodes and having lots and lots and lots of nodes that you don't know who they are because there's less, there's less skin in the game essentially. So that, that's kind of one dynamic I wanted to touch upon. Yeah, and just to further on that, this is just the initial implementation of crypto economic security. If you, you know, in the Chainlink 2.0 white paper, as everyone has known for a while, the, the, the second layer is to have this explicit staking model. Oh, actually, I think there's there's really you know, two. There's this, this explicit staking model where, you know, if you're found to have prov- go offline or you provide an outlier data or whatever, whatever is defined in the service agreement, you are automatically penalized. So you're staking, you're, you're putting your link collateral at stake uh, to, to, to prove that you're honest. And if you're wrong, then you can get that slash. So that, that's going to create a whole other layer of crypto economic security. And another one that I, I think would probably happen, uh, this one is just me more speculating, is that you would have an implicit incentive. You would lock link up in a time lock contract, potentially. This is where it's not explicitly staked in a contract, like in a, in a service agreement, but I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to lock my link up for six months to a year to show my commitment to the network. Like we see this with, uh, I believe, was it Cardano and Ava, where you, you, because you have this link locked up over a long period of time, you're very financially exposed to that token. And, and it, if you harm the network, especially like a large problem happens, 
then your financial stake is at risk. And so there's there's different ways that you could actually implement this. And it's already it's already working on other systems like you know like Cardano and Ava. And kind of like a common rebuttal is that well, couldn't you just short the token and then attack the network then? But that's kind of an attack vector. We've seen that proposed for Bitcoin and we've seen that proposed for Ethereum for years, but it's not realistic for a multitude of factors, not just the social coordination of issues of actually trying to put that together between all these individuals who have so much revenue to lose because of that. But also in order to short a token, you would need to get liquidity from somewhere. And you can get that from a centralized exchange. Well, you need to do KYC or they can just censor you at any time. You can't necessarily use a DeFi application because more likely than not, it's using Chainlink. You attack Chainlink, well, you're gonna, you're gonna lose funds if you're trying to short and attack the network. So realistically, it's not really an attack vector that is actually practical. It's more just like a theorized example. But when you actually look at the incentives backing the network and you look at the reputation, you look at the not only the future revenue that these nodes will generate, but the appreciation of link that could happen if the network is successful, that's a large incentive to keep being reliable. Yeah, and so like before we, we describe all the different, you know, Chainlink calls the defense in depth, decentralized nodes, decentralized data, reputation, cryptographic proofs, crypto economics, trusted hardware, multiple clients. Like these all can be mixed and matched to create security. Whereas blockchain has a very specific format, oracles have a lot of a multitude of approaches, for, for, at least for Chainlink, to and these can be used in different ways for different use cases, and and I think this really then comes down to you know because it has all these approaches, Chainlink can really become a standard, and I think there's many reasons why. Well, first, it's very generalized. Like there's no specific framework. Like you have to use this much decentralization, and it works on this you know, update frequency, like it, it can, it can, any type of design can be built with Chainlink. It, it, the second is that it's heterogeneous, meaning that millions of Oracle networks could run at the same time without any dependencies on each other. And so like this enterprise needs, maybe they only want a specific type, you know, certain nodes and these nodes want to run trusted hardware or something. Then you have this other DeFi one where maybe we want a permissionless network, or maybe we want like, you know, a, a certain amount of decentralization on this network. Okay, well, these Oracle networks can be used for these use cases. Maybe we want a derivatives protocol where we want really high frequency updates and they run on this, you know, they, they, they run on this update frequency and those all have different costs, they have different trade-offs. So, but because you can run all these in parallel and it's not one design like a blockchain, you can support all these use cases. And then, you know, other ones is it's API agnostic. You can connect to any API through external adapters. It's blockchain agnostic. You can run these on any blockchain and you can run them natively on the blockchain. Maybe you could actually touch uh, CLG on how that actually works. I don't think people like realize that you can run it directly on a blockchain. Yeah, so kind of a common narrative we see is that Chainlink is like a Ethereum specific Oracle solution, but actually Chainlink is natively blockchain agnostic like CO said. And that, that what that essentially means is that the Chainlink software itself, like the Oracle client node operators run, that can connect to any blockchain directly without needing to route through Ethereum, without needing to route through other chains. So if, when we when you look at the price feeds on like Polygon, those Chainlink nodes are delivering it straight to Polygon. It's not routed through another blockchain. 
And not only that, not only is it like direct delay to delivery, but the payments to node operators happens on that blockchain at the speed of that blockchain. And that's effectively done by taking the link tokens, which uh, primarily exist on Ethereum, bridging that to another blockchain like Polygon, and then using those link tokens to pay the node operators for that service. So when we look at these like layer two networks and these other more scalable, uh, more server farm L1 networks, they can support a lot faster update frequency, meaning that a chain link network on a scalable network is not bound by the speed of any other blockchain. It can operate at the native speed of that chain and pay oracles at the native speed of that chain. So we, we kind of see some other Oracle implementations where they have their own blockchain and they say they're really fast and they're super amazing, but they're just delivering it to their own ghost chain. You know, what the speed that matters is actually delivering it to the blockchain where the smart contracts live. And so while other networks have more of like, you have to route through my chain first before I get to your chain, Chainlink just delivers it directly to that chain. So that's cheaper, that's faster, and that's just more practical for users because if I'm a smart contract on Polygon, I pay my Chainlink nodes on Polygon. I don't need to go pay them on a different network. That's that's like a huge underappreciated point of using the Chainlink network. Yeah, and, and you just said not only the speed, but the cost. The cost is of the native network. So th those are two things to, to think about when like L2, you know, Chainlink's going to Arbitrum, it's going to Optimism. We've seen it on Starkware, it's on Polygon. Like it's, it, it, you know, it, there was a grant for Solana. So it's going to be all these all these network at those native speeds. And, and, and I'm, some people will be like, well, isn't it still dependent on Ethereum with the token? Well, first off, the token is bridged over. So you're using it natively on that blockchain. And also if, I don't expect this to happen, but if if Ethereum, something happened to Ethereum, you could make the, the hub, you know, the main spot of the link token on another chain. So, so there are ways to resolve that. Should it come to that? I don't ever expect it to come to that, but it could happen. Um, and, and there's a couple other unique benefits of Chainlink. You, you can share costs. So you see this with the price feeds. You have, I think the Ethereum USD, you have 40 plus projects all sharing in that price feed. So, so that actually is an economy of scale effect. Uh, you also, I kind of want to touch on that, that the economy of scale one, like that's, that's a key one that I don't like think people, some people don't fully grasp is like, oh, can I just launch my own Oracle? Well, when you're using Chainlink, you're getting access to not only the most secure Oracle solution, you're getting access to the lowest cost Oracle solution. And the two of those combined make it the superior solution by default, because when you're looking at something like ETHUSD with 40 users, each user is not paying the full cost of operating that network. They're paying a tiny fraction of that costs and they're getting access to a network that is far more secure and far more reliable and more fresh than they could ever possibly afford on their own. And so this economies of scale basically allows for specific Oracle networks to be more secure and it allows for more Oracle networks to be launched because they're all, every user is pooling their fees to pay for a specific Oracle service. So it's beneficial for the network and higher security and especially beneficial for users because they're never paying the full cost. So this like economies of scale is incredibly powerful. And as to why you can't just launch an Oracle tomorrow and step into the space and say you're better than Chainlink, it doesn't really matter if you are or not, you can't compete on the economies of scale that Chainlink already has. And so this kind of 
is something you can step into that kind of gets into like the network effect, which Chainlink has multiple layers of. Yeah, I think with the network effect too, people don't realize what, if you think about it, it's like a common layer between all the disparate systems. So between blockchains, between off-chain systems, you have this kind of this middle layer. And what happens is that if I want to connect to any other system, whether that's a blockchain, whether that's a, uh, an API, I just have to you go through Chainlink. So you, it becomes this reservoir for everyone to put their documentation, for everyone to tell everyone else how to connect to my system, how to read and write data from my system. And so, you, and then you develop a lot of de uh, resources, uh, developer tooling on this layer. So you can do any, you can fetch any type of data, you can do it on any blockchain, you can do various types of computation all through this kind of standard layer. And then a, a big reservoir of, of resources gather in this layer. And that actually has a massive benefit to all. If you have a, you could, if you have all these different competing systems, like it becomes more convoluted. It, you have to like do a lot more integration work, and it's not, it doesn't really scale well. And it, so this actually benefits everyone to have this kind of network effect standardized layer in between everything. Yeah, I think with the network effect, I, th I think there's 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 multiple layers to it. Even with Chainlink, it's connecting blockchains to every other external data server data sources. It's also connecting every blockchain to every other blockchain, like uh, token transfers, like we see with DBridge. And it's also connecting every off-chain system to every other off-chain system using the blockchain as a trust anchor. So that in itself is three layers of a network effect. And I'm kind of making the joke in the past, you can call that Sergey's law, kind of like Metcalf's law. It's, it's, it's three layers of this network effect where every participant gets access to the greatest amount of possibility and choices because it is a single standard. It's, and this is kind of something you can look at like with more lower level like communication protocols like HTTP, hypertext transfer protocol. And that's something for which when you wanna connect your web server to users in a web browser, there's no question to which protocol you're gonna use. You're gonna use the protocol with the most users, the most mindshare, the most integrations. That's HTTP. That's like the de facto standard. And there may be some maybe slightly better standard out there, but that doesn't matter because the network effect just completely overpowers that aspect. So I, I kind of see Chainlink, Chainlink in of itself is a communication protocol, just like HTTPS, but it has a crypto economically secured dynamic to that. So it's I, I see the network effect is like a significant, uh, almost like a moat to the adoption of Chainlink. Yeah, it's, it's both like a, a, a place where it has all the resources you would need. So all the inputs and outputs and computations, but also is so flexible that you could design any type of way to communicate with another system. So this, this like all the resources plus all the customization that you may want can make it a standard where, where no other org protocol has this kind of uh, architecture. I, th I think another aspect of the network effect, if you think about it from like, a user's perspective. If I'm a data provider and I want to sell my data to the most amount of users possible, the most amount of smart contracts and the most amount of blockchains, going and integrating with like an ad hoc Oracle network or building something myself to go sell this data is entirely impractical. What you would really want is a single like interface, a single gateway, which you make a single chain link integration. Now as a data provider, you can sell your data to smart contracts on every blockchain 
and to the existing users that Chainlink already has. So like that, that's kind of like a practical aspect of the network effect and how it directly benefits an ecosystem participant. So I, I think that's kind of an important dynamic. Yeah, and just to, before we move on to the, the last section about where this is all leading, I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding of like, what is Chainlink? Because people, it's kind of two things. You have the you have this framework where you could build any type of Oracle network you want, so so it's it's a way for anyone to go in and say, all right, I'm going to build this Oracle. But also, what a lot of people see is that there's a lot of kind of pre-built solutions. So they've kind of bootstrapped the network, they've launched a bunch of price feeds, they've launched VRF, and then teams using these price feeds collectively. So there's a bunch of existing solutions that if you don't want to go build your own solution, you just immediately use one that's been time tested. It's been, you know, it's run on mainnet for two years. There's a lot of big projects using it. It has a, there's a lot of on-chain data about its reliability, you know, which nodes are running it. And so this is, it's kind of like building a web app. If, if, you know, Sergey uses this example all the time, but it's a good one. If you're, if you're, if you're building Uber, you're not going to go build GPS from scratch. I'm just gonna go connect to a GPS API to get GPS data that I use in my application. Same with payments, same with messaging. No one's gonna build, no one wants, most developers don't wanna build these from scratch, nor should they, they don't have time. It's a lot of resources. What they wanna do is just get an existing solution that's been, you know, that's already proven to work. You can verify that it works. You can look at the source code, you can look at its reliability. You know, over time, you can see a lot of projects use it. And this allows, developers to build applications really fast. Okay, boom, I can build a DeFi app so quickly because I already got this price data on chain. Or I can build this gaming application because randomness is really readily available. Or, you know, this is what's, you're gonna see more and more and more of this. And not just with data, but you're gonna see it with computations. Oh, I can use Chainlink to get privacy. I can use Chainlink for fair order trans, you know, fair order sequencing, like all these different services for you to just quickly build applications. I think that's that's kind of like one of the core value propositions of Chainlink is that it's an enabler. It allows developers to focus specifically on their core business logic. And this is something that projects like Aave have spoken on in the past, where if they were to build their own Oracle, they would have to dedicate developer resources, time, energy, money, auditing, creating, monitoring, funding an Oracle solution of their own. They would have to become a money market and an Oracle. But because they're using Chainlink and they've been using it since day one, they can focus, they can hone in on making the best possible money market they can. They can dedicate all their resources to that and then use an Oracle solution developed from a different project who that project, which is Chainlink, specifically focuses on building the best Oracles and creating the best framework and the best like pre-built decentralized Oracle networks that other devs can just plug into like money. So you know, in DeFi, we see like the analogy of like money Legos. You can connect these different DeFi protocols together to create a new DeFi protocol. That's exactly how Chainlink works. These uh, price feeds are on-chain reference contracts. So ETHUSD has a contract that represents the ETHUSD price. And because of the power of composability, people can seamlessly pay and access that specific reference contract and then start using that in their application. So it, it's a, a dynamic where Chainlink just strictly makes smart contracts and blockchains in general superior. Chainlink is never going to compete with your blockchain. It's not going to launch a blockchain because it's not trying to be a blockchain. It's trying to provide developers 
these Oracle tools they need so they don't have to think about how an Oracle network works because it does just work. So it's like lowering the mental workload and allowing developers to focus on what they're trying to innovate on. And so that's kind of feeds back into like that Uber example. Uber didn't need to think about how the banking system works. They didn't need to have think about how satellites work. They didn't have to think about how, you know, telecommunication, telecommunication towers work. They just focused on, okay, how do I build a ride sharing app, connect some APIs, build a user interface, boom, now I have an MVP. Like that, that's what developers care about. They want to build. They don't want to have to like go fucking build their own infrastructure. So that that that's like such a powerful dynamic. And that, that kind of leads into this next aspect of like, what is this all accumulating to? Yeah, and you see this a lot with the, the white paper and there was a recent blog post, which was this term hybrid smart contracts. I, I like to think of it like, this is really like the end state. That doesn't mean we're at like the, we're even close to, you know, where everything is going, but this combination of on-chain code and secure off-chain services from Oracle networks. So you're combining, you know, this really trusted environment with Oracle networks that provide you highly trusted off-chain you know, gateways to off-chain resources or provide you those resources themselves like through computation. And so you, you're, you're mending two different environments. You're mending this really secure environment with the flexibility of all the things you can do off-chain. Yeah, with, with hybrid smart contracts, you can basically think of it as an evolution of what smart contracts are. When you have just isolated on-chain code alone, there's really only so much you can do. But once you've extended it with these uh, decentralized services, you basically get the best of both worlds. You get the on-chain smart contract, which provides uh, this extreme transparency, this immutability and access to private key and user funds. And then you combine that with the connectivity and the privacy and the scalability of these off-chain Oracle networks to basically provide like a hybrid application as it's in the definition itself. So that, that's like it's a new architecture for building decentralized applications. And, and if we look at most applications today, I mean, there are exceptions, but most of DeFi are hybrid applications. Anyone that needs price data, unless you're using an on-chain Oracle, which has its own issues, you're a hybrid app. Like Aave is a hybrid DeFi application. Synthetics is a hybrid DeFi application. All these gaming, a lot of these gaming applications, they need randomness. So they're using an external resource, Chainlink VRF, as a, as a verifiable random number generator, which is basically producing randomness in a manner that you can prove is actually random. It wasn't tampered with. This is a hybrid app, uh, smart contract application. Uh, NFT is similar. Anything that using randomness through Chainlink VRF is using an external resource to augment their on-chain application. Insurance, if we look at Arbol, they're using weather data, like all, to, to settle insurance contracts or prediction markets. So you're seeing this already with data of just verifying external events to augment these really secure types of applications. And I think like with hybrid smart contracts, well, like you said, you can define DeFi and NFTs as hybrid. I think that it's kind of like in of itself a spectrum. Today, we have a lot of the code happening on chain and referencing like a price feed or verifiable randomness for a specific piece of data. And I think as we go into the future and I think as things evolve, 
the definition of hybrid smart contracts will kind of stay the same, but what we'll see is more of a shift from most of the things happening on-chain to most of the things happening off-chain, and then simply using the on-chain logic as like uh, a settlement layer, as like a trust anchor for the things that happen off-chain. And the white paper kind of refers to this as meta contracts in the sense of Chainlink would be a decentralized meta layer, the interface between the off-chain and the on-chain world. And so as time evolves, more and more things will move off-chain because it provides numerous benefits, but it retains the key value propositions of blockchains themselves. And so that kind of allows you to really expand what is possible with smart contract applications. Like I said, you can use the blockchain as a trust anchor, as a final settlement layer, which allows you to drastically increase like the transactions per second, the, the decentralized transactions per second, which is you know very much needed with Ethereum doing about 15 TPS. You can provide a lot more confidentiality because, because an Oracle network is off-chain, you can have the use of zero-knowledge proofs of trust execution environments and select trusted entities all in combination to keep the terms of an agreement private. And you can even leverage that to have forms of like on-chain privacy with uh, like Mixicals that a white paper that came out a little while ago about how you can keep the, the terms of the agreement, the data that triggers the agreement who like one who gets paid out from an agreement how much money was evolved in that agreement and all that data is kept private because it happens in the oracle network instead and so th th there's a lot of different there's a lot of different advantages and if you go even more abstract and even more advanced into the future what you know uh, i'm sure co also helps happens as well as like creating truly blockchain agnostic applications so we see things like SushiSwap, they're deploying on a lot of different networks, but each application's like isolated from each other. With Dawn's, with decentralized Oracle networks, it can act as like the substrate in which it coordinates activity between all these different chains. So you can have one application that's running on Ethereum for security, on Polygon for scalability, and then on uh, Oasis for privacy. And it's running different parts of the contract on these different blockchains, but all of them to together create a single decentralized application. So it's like an actual blockchain agnostic application because Chainlink is of and of itself blockchain agnostic. So I, th I think this last one's pretty interesting. I think you can you can dive into on CO. Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've hit a lot of points on it already. I mean, the, the thing is uh, every blockchain has certain things it's good at. It kind of it was that blockchain trilemma, like you can only provide, you know, optimize for two, two features per se, and some of them don't even have privacy. And so how do we get features that aren't available on the blockchain itself? And Ethereum, obviously scalability, you could want privacy, you could want transaction sequencing, like we see, you know, with a lot of people talking about MEV now. So there's a lot of services that you would want that you're, you're not going to get on the base layer even probably never and probably you probably shouldn't get them in the base layer because it's going to add risk as we said before so then you can get these in oracle network and because you have all those as we described above all those types of uh ways to create security and reliability like the, the defense and death approach you can get those in a highly you know in a way that you can that's really reliable it's similar to the blockchain and so like for, for Ethereum, you might want scalability, you might want privacy, you might want to order you know, transaction sequencing, 
but on Sol say Solana. Well, Solana doesn't need scalability, but you may want privacy. So like every blockchain may or layer two solution is going to need Oracle services for different reasons. And so because it's generalized, because it's blockchain agnostic, it can act as this layer of services for, for everyone and in between everyone. So you're, 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 you're getting services and you're using it to talk to other systems as well. And this, this is going to really unlock kind of whatever you know, we wanna do. You know, we can, we're not limited to this very limited set of functionality that is only available on a blockchain. There's all these other things we can do now. I mean, you could think about scalability and privacy alone opens up a ton of applications that you can't do today. I mean, I'd say the vast majority of them have, are, not, are, are still not possible because you don't have those core properties. Like a lot of applications simply can't be built unless there's privacy, whether that's for legal reasons, whether that's for, you know, design, people just want privacy. And so by, by bringing those in without having to change the blockchains themselves, you want the blockchains to be decentralized and transparent and, and very simple. And so you can get those benefits while getting all these other benefits from Oracle network. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty encapsulate like the, the long-term ideals here. I think that's kind of mentioned before, but I think like, you know, Oracle's and chain, like a lot more things are gonna be executed off-chain and gonna be processed off-chain, but that doesn't negate the need for blockchains at all. Oracle networks work because blockchain exists because they provide this ultimate settlement layer, this ultimate trust anchor, while Oracle networks provide all of this expanded functionality in which wouldn't be practical or reasonable to do on a blockchain itself. But all of the results of that activity off-chain can be kind of summed up and put back onto the layer one, kind of using like an existing uh, layer two syncing mechanism to provide this connection between the on-chain and off-chain environment. So ultimately in the long-term, I think the most realistic situation in which we'll see that is kind of contrasted to what we have today is that blockchains primarily are going to be used as a settlement layer for uh, layer two rollup blocks, for uh, like fraud proofs and these different validity proofs for layer two, and for these like institutional, you know, Coinbase moving their funds to another wallet type large whale transactions. Well, everything else will be happening in this off chain layer. And that could be uh, a, an existing layer two solution, which is inherently augmented and improved by Chainlink. So it's kind of like this different layered stack. You have the base layer blockchain, you have the layer twos on top, and then you have Chainlink, which is, you can really think of it as like an application specific layer two, where you're not gonna be deploying arbitrary smart contracts, but you would be providing specific decentralized services and the contracts that need those services settle on those Oracle networks. So I think realistically over time, if we really want to achieve mass adoption and a mass usage of smart contracts in their ultimate form, their kind of final state, they will inherently take the form of hybrid smart contracts using the combination of Oracle networks and blockchains together, because that's ultimately what provides both the necessary mixture of decentralized security, immutability, and transparency of a blockchain, and the more decentralized but flexible uh, connectivity, privacy, and all the other benefits of an off-chain environment, and you combine that into one ultimate infrastructure in the form of providing hybrid smart contracts. So that, that that's kind of that's ultimately what Chainlink is trying to help enable. They're trying to help developers actually create these smart contract applications as they envision without the inherent limitations that they're 
they're limited to today. So that, that, that's like, that's why Chainlink exists effectively. Yeah, I kind of see it as unlocking the 80% of value that's kind of untapped still for blockchains. You know, uh, email, it's like uh, you know, the email versus the internet. There's a lot of value in blockchains inherently. No one's denying that, you know, we see that with DEXs and things like that, but the Oracle's really unlock the other 80, I would say even 90%. I think it's gonna be even higher than that as it expands out more. I mean, sure, we may get some more functionalities on chain, but realistically the Oracle networks, because they're anchored to the blockchain, you can still get a lot of uh, trust in them. I would even argue too, that like DEXs really took off when DeFi took off because DeFi brought all these applications to the blockchain and then all these people were transacting on chain through these applications. And then DEXs became a lot more useful uh, to interact with, to go between these different applications. So um, yeah, I think we're gonna see a huge takeoff in gaming, I think. And then we'll start to see more, especially as, as Oracle's bring privacy and scalability, we'll see a lot of new applications, whether that's enterprise or whether that's just an expansion in the you know existing ones and this new startups. Uh, that require those kind of properties to even exist. So I think we're going to see a real boom um, when layer twos and Oracle networks, and these are bringing these kind of features. And yeah, I would entirely agree. I think that this is kind of something that Sergey has mentioned before, but when you look at the rate at which Oracle services are created, you can directly track that uh, at, with the rate in which financial products and smart contract applications are created, as well as tracking it alongside the total value locked within the DeFi ecosystem as more Chainlink services are provided, more value is created to developers, and those developers can use that value to generate value for users. And so that kind of generates, essentially, it's not a zero-sum game. The introduction of additional services in decentralized services, Oracle networks, generates more value for the specific applications using that data and for every other application that's connected to that Chainlink application. So inherently, when you're looking at the growth of DeFi, you can see a lot of it being sparked by the growth of Chainlink services that are provided. There's no mistake that after Chainlink price feeds launched and started operating at scale, not that long after we saw DeFi summer. And, and it's not a coincidence that Chainlink VRF was launched and then not that long after NFT started taking off. Like they're not, they're not coincidences, like these services enable new applications to be created. And as we see more things being launched, like keepers and like these more off-chain computation type services, fair sequencing services, new applications are enabled, which allow not only these new applications to exist, but then, you know, because they're building blocks, people can build on top of that. So ultimately I feel like Chainlink is like one of those things that kind of blends into the background. It's this low level infrastructure, which developers love but the users may not necessarily see that because they're not developers. They don't, they don't use Chainlink directly. They use applications powered by Chainlink. So like this layer of, of abstraction away is, you know, in a way kind of unfortunate, but in another sense, you know, does it really matter because users are getting better applications and better services in the, in, in the first place. So I think that's, that, that kind of comes back to like the broader concept of like information asymmetry. I think that's, I think it'll become more clear over time as contracts start actually executing on chain like Don networks, like more shifting from on chain to off chain. So that's that's called ultimately kind of what I see as like the long term vision. So 
Yeah, we, we covered a lot of different topics in this podcast from, from trust to blockchains, to oracles, to hybrid smart contracts and beyond. There was, there, there was a lot of information I think that's gonna help a lot of people kind of frame their thinking about why, why blockchains exist, why Chainlink exists, what's the value proposition. So I don't know how long this recording ended up being, but I definitely still plan on doing future recordings and CO and I will continue to post all the Twitter threads and all the, the link pools we share, link pills we share on Twitter. So is there, are there any last points, any, any last considerations you want to bring up, CO? Uh, nothing in particular. Um, just uh, thanks for having me on and I hope people uh, got some useful information. If they have any questions or, you know, about things they heard in this podcast, you know, feel free to put you know, put them in the comments and try to get them answered. All right. Thanks for coming on, CEO. Definitely appreciate you having on having you on here, and we'll have more more smart content pieces to come, as always. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in, and as always, stay incredibly based and link pilled.